Probably uh, lots of lessons that can be learnt by a lot of people in that regard if they uh, just took the time to sit back and assess it all. Yeah. Um. So they're from Sydney to where? Sydney to the East Kimberley? Well, not exactly. I did a bit of stuff in the coal mines of Queensland when I was 16. So I went from there, then we got good at making walls and then went to the coal mines in Queensland, did a bit of stuff there. Uh, that was a horrible place, wearing gloves and collars up and sleeves all the way down and... <laughs> dripping sweat um, for days on end. You have to come home and have coal dust like down in my underpants from the sweat on my neck. <laughs> so it dribbled down your stomach and into your underpants. Like you'd have like black coal dust. Like how, <laughs> it's just terrible. Um, I remember just being a living hell. I just didn't want to be there <laughs> at all. The money was no enticement. <laughs> well, that's it. look, you had money and you had it had to be done. You can't just get up and walk out. You can't leave uh, your team, you know. So that was a, a good experience. And if anyone wants a good experience like that, they should definitely try and push themselves to go out there and give that a go. <laughs> Crikey. And uh, then I came back down to Queensland and did a, like a butcher's apprenticeship at Tate because I really wanted to do beef, cut, be able to cut up my own meat. No matter where, where we lived growing up, we always had cattle or, or right, pigs and chooks and stuff. So it was always a farm butcher to come out and do it. Yep. So I wanted to go and do that so that um, 
I could get into um, having my own beautiful homegrown beef. Yes. And then at about 17, 18, moved up to Kimberley's, Kanara here. Yep. Um, and I did two things. One, I joined the Army Reserves up here and started work on a station. Now, the Army Reservist thing I find interesting, you don't sound like you're much of a conformist. How do you cope with, <laughs> with the uh, Army Reserve life? Well, the good thing, okay, so this is the North, North Force is known for its you know, unorthodox methods of getting the job done. Like uh, back in the day, they were known as the Nakaroos. And there's a few, not a lot written about them, but there's a couple of books you can read. Like I think one is called The Nakaroos of Australia. And they were just kind of farmers back when Australia was getting invaded. They just basically started up their own unit out here with indigenous, a lot of indigenous fellows and farmers on horses, and they went around. It was like Dad's army. Um, so there was a bit of an unorthodox way of doing things. I'm, I'm known to be a little bit less uh, as far as <laughs> discipline and the proper Australian army way. Yep. So these days it's still got the discipline and, and everything you need, but most of the time they're, we're out on the land exploring our own country. So um, whether it be from as uh, far as south as Broome or further, right up towards Clumbaroo coastline, right down towards Wyndham, and then all the way across the top end of Australia, right across to Cairns. So you, it's a, definitely not on the base, stuck in a barrack somewhere. You're out bush the entire time. Oh, right. And so how often are you away doing that? Yeah, the minimum you have to do each year to keep up to your training is 21 days. It's not actually very hard. Just 21 days a year, so it's quite easy. Yep. Um, but then you've got different courses you can go on to up your skills. It's going to be a full drive course or a boat course to get your, you know, for Zodiacs or a medical course. So you constantly got courses you can do and then there's always uh, different operations and exercise that come up that they will call you up and say, hey, look, we need this. Uh, are you available on these days? Oh, great. I won't tell you too much if it's an operation. No. But you get the basics at least of what dates. Um, but yeah, at least it keeps me busy for the times that I'm not working on the cattle station. So the the time in the East Kimberley, when you went there initially to work, were you just going up to work as a ringer for somebody or, you know, were you onto a family property or? Well, some of the, there's family up here. So yeah, I came up to only a small family property up here. Um, I wanted to be up here. So um, I moved up here with my uncle and auntie. And then in uh, six months, I was, or last five months, I was on a cattle station, um, a question station. I was out there. Uh, well, by uh, the name of Lindsay Ward, he's a bit of a hard man around these days. Uh, we call him Caramel Koala, hard on the outside, soft on the inside. <laughs> so, as hard as they are, they they still got a soft side to them, you know. Yeah, and so um, are you still ringing in the Kimberley now, or or you've decided that there's yep, an easier well, life out there? <laughs> not, as, not as much. Uh, I still do a bit of uh, contract bull catching around the area. Yep. Um, sometimes up at Clumbaroo and down towards uh, Fitzroy and down that way. But unfortunately, due to a few uh, injuries, I can um, I can't maintain what you should get to. Um, just the typical ringers uh, or fellas' ways, you know, tough it out. Just keep going, keep working. But in the end, you, you pay for it in the long run. Just with uh, my knees and back and neck, unfortunately, and shoulders so, uh, and fingers. It's not much. They're all going. Not much. <laughs> not, not injured by the sound. But was, no. Was that all in the course of uh, bull catching, or was there, uh, you know, a number of? Uh, yep. All, all of it. <laughs> uh, it was all like so. I did uh, one of the first big injuries I got was uh, my kneecap, uh, jaw, and shoulder. And that was from uh, off a bike. A bull hit me off a two-wheeler. I was on rock. 
and you can't go very fast. And most bike riders out there would understand that bouncing over a rock, you kind of just sit up a little bit and sit in first gear and kind of let the bike bounce where it needs to bounce. Mm. And the chopper was hovering above a, a tree, and it was about 7.30 in the morning, and it's like, finally, I'm, I haven't seen any cattle all morning being out here at 5 or quarter to 5, haven't seen anything. So I finally got some action. I've caught up to where the chopper is, and I said, oh, mate, do you need a hand? He's like, oh, I didn't know I had a bike out here. And I was like, yeah, I've been following you, <laughs> trying to keep up. Um, he goes, oh, well, I've seen you here. Can you get in this bush and get this Mickey out? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm making my way there now. I got close and I could see him. Um, for those of the, he, he knows the, the Mickey, they kind of sit under a bush and they kind of look up at the chopper thinking that they're hiding. <laughs> and it's like, you can't get me, like you can't see me. And sneaky little bugger. It's like a little kid, you know, hiding under a bush. You can clearly see him, but he's just thinking that he can't be seen. <laughs> and I thought, I can't really come at him because he's, I can't steer on rocks. I can't steer and I want to be able to get away if he comes at me. So I'll zigzag towards him in a pattern way to, so that if he does, I can still, you know, take off. But I got too close and the time he did come at me, I couldn't take off quick enough and he hit me in the shoulder and sent me flying um, and my knee hit the rock first and kind of cracked the, uh, across the uh, middle of it. And I uh, yeah, hit my jaw and uh, knee busted, uh, tore my shoulder out. So then I decided to not be as cool and not use the two-wheeler, uh, at least with a four-wheeler. <laughs> I can leave it there and he can go to town on the four-wheeler and leave me there. I can hide up a tree or something, you know. <laughs> bloody, bloody hell. So clearly you went back for another go after that. <laughs> oh, and, yeah. you're, and you're still bloody. clearly doing it. <laughs> We had to carry on. Like, I, I was continued driving, um, and I just made my way as close as I could back to the track. And then when I got back to the road, I couldn't even get my leg off the bike. I couldn't straighten it out. It swollen up that much. But I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to leave my leg off the bike, and I'm just going to find the easy, easiest path, find a cattle pad somewhere, and I'm just going to follow that. And if the chopper needs me, I'm going to go silent. <laughs> no, throw him too far back. Mate. Yeah, I've just got this big one here. He's calling to I've got it, my last. Sorry, cut off you. But, yeah. <laughs> so uh, did you end up in hospital in Kununurra or did they have to transfer you to Perth? No, no. No, no. I just uh, strapped it up and tried not to bend my leg um, after that for a while. And mostly it was my shoulder that I thought was really bad because I couldn't lift anything, but I could hobble. You can always hobble. And uh, actually, three days later, a funny story, and I didn't realize this could happen, but three days later, I was in the yard, and I realized I couldn't jump the yards because every time I did, it would, I would just collapse. Like, my knee just could not support me jumping the yards. So I was working the wieners, and this little heifer, son of a... Oh, just everyone know they come past and they just flick. They just kick out to the side and they know exactly where you are and absolutely spot me right up and drop me. I hit the ground and I started like dry reaching until I vomited from the pain. I was dizzy, like in and out of consciousness. Like someone thought that I'd been hit by a bull or something, but there's only weird in the yard. And was like, Naz, what's going on? Like, what happened? You're right. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Oh, terrible. That killed, oh, that was killing me. <laughs> Bloody hell. Well, so that was, uh, that was one injury. I shuddered to think what the rest are going to be like. <laughs> <Being> like. <laughs> there's a few stupid ones. There's a few bad ones. There's a few stupid ones. There's some that are just damn right being an idiot and you deserve it. I deserve it. So are you now running the contract mustering business and not participating? I take it? 
Uh, I think that's pretty much impossible to not participate. Um, <laughs> I don't know how. I can see why you look at the older fellas and like, why don't you just stop? Like, you clearly can't do it. You're going to hurt yourself. And now I'm looking at my, um, yeah, I clearly can't do it, but I'm still going, aren't I? <laughs> um, you can't help it. If it's in your blood, uh, you can't. You just can't stop doing it. Once you're, I can imagine even old footy players, old sport, they can't help, but even if they're injured, they still want to get out there and play. <laughs> so I try and stick to just driving the quad or the bull catcher um, and get someone else to get in the yards or get in the truck. But um, just as soon as it doesn't go the way you want it to go, you can't help but get out of the way. I'm, I'm going to get in there. All of a sudden, I'm on the ground crying. Um, and the boys are laughing at me. It's like, great, I didn't. Should have, uh, should have thought about that. <laughs> what does Nav do um, to chill out? You know, your life, your, your daily um, environment and your, and your daily work is fairly uh, high uh, motivation and, <laughs> uh, and high pressure. Not even high pressure. I don't know the word to describe it. So what do you do when you think, I just need to take five and go away and recover? Take five? I don't know, go fishing. The Kimberley's Kimberley's known for some of the best barramundi fishing in the world. So I go... Um, I go fishing or exploring because there's lots of uh, waterfalls and creeks and stuff. Or I try and uh, go somewhere without, I guess it's not really relaxing, but I'd, I like to go somewhere with just a knife or just a water bottle or something and see if I can live there for a day or two days, you know, and see what food or things you can make in the area. Because if you don't have something, generally you can come up with it. Uh, improvisation comes from going without, basically. So I teach survival in the Army, so I'm a survival instructor in the Army. Right. Um, now that's one of my main jobs in the Army Reserve there, so... That's why I like to uh, keep doing things and learning more things about bush tucker or survival. And so how long have you, have you had that role within the Army? Obviously, they, they recognise that talent in you fairly early. Uh, yeah, so I so they don't run courses very often. Um, and then when they do, it's quite hard to get on because everyone's trying to get on a survival course, you can imagine. Um, and so about 24, I was 24, when I, so after four years or five years of hearing about it um, before I could um, uh, get on it. So I end up just on one of the instructors, meeting one of the instructors and have to show off to him for a bit to try and go, oh, you might actually be, you know, uh, good to be on the survival course. So I finally got on it and um, broke two fingers, my two fingers on my right hand before <laughs> the weekend before I got, got on the bloody course. So it made that a good struggle and made me look like an idiot a little bit because if you've got an injury, you can't go on an army exercise. So they... Um, they will uh, uh, kick you off. Mm. So I had to pretend like I didn't have anything right. Dislocated my middle one, and the, my point finger cracked it across the, um, like a chip to hold a chip off it. So, yeah, that was a fun time trying to chop and trying to make string and trying to make spears and, and can't bend your fingers. Um, good experience. Very, very good experience. <laughs> I guess growing up in the East Kimberley, you would have had a lot of interaction with Aboriginal people and Aboriginal camps and Aboriginal yep. stockmen. Can you yep. put any of those survival skills down to what you learnt from those people? Definitely. Definitely living and growing up with the Indigenous um, and a lot of time in the communities and just I remember being mind-blown by I thought they were joking like that to the point of I mean, walking along and they can see a dog's footprint and know it's a brown dog but it's probably because they seen on a twig earlier one bit of brown hair and saw that track, you know, and now seen a hair and going, oh, it's a brown dog, oh, it's got brown and black, brown and black dog, you know. It's like, how the hell are they looking at this from a damn footprint? Mm. But, oh, they can tell their uncle's footprint. You know, hey, look, uncle carrying something. Look, he must got feed, he got a feed, you know, he got a wallaby, or he got a rule. And it's because they can see one little blood drop somewhere, you know, and could smell it with a kangaroo thing, and then that's it. They know he's got a feed, now they're going to track him down and find him over the next sand dune somewhere. There's, there he is cooking up a feed. 
and so they go and pester him. Yeah. But yeah, they, I learned a lot, a lot from them. Not only my hunting, but um, just the bush tucker and, and how to live with the land, I guess. And so are you still interacting with them? I, I believe you've now got your own place in the Kimberley. Yeah, I still go fishing and hunting with them. Do you have them employed amongst your staff? A couple of them. It's, hard, it's, a, it's a bit of a shame, really, because a lot of them, there's not many of them around anymore that, that work on the cattle stations. Yep. Um, you do get some down south and you maybe across Queensland there, and they come and go. You know, like it, it's, you can have them on there for a week, and then something happens back in the community, and they've got to go away, whether it be a funeral or family issues, or because um, they're very family oriented or community oriented. So you do, I do sometimes get them out for a couple of weeks, and then they might come back at the end of the year sometime, or um, depending on um, how they grew up, I guess. If they're going out, out in the communities, it's just, you know what it's like sometimes, the, the town can get them a bit carried away, and uh, you can lose your workers. So. But I still do my fishing and hunting with them, so that's where I spend most of my time out bush with them. So the property you own in the Kimberley now, is that uh, the first place you went to? Is it one that came on the market and you thought, I'm, I really enjoy this place and I'm going to put my roots down and stay here? Tell us a bit about what you've got in the East Kimberley now. Uh, I've the place up here, um, just on the river of uh, the Ord River, Upper Ord River. Mm-hmm. It's only about 12 to 15 acres um, with a uh, like a six-acre block behind it. So you can use all this. And this is mainly just as a, now it's mainly used as a base camp for um, the boys and the, and the team that go out. Uh, over the wet season, you can come back, bring all your equipment, and it's not left out on a station somewhere, yeah. or especially now contracting. You're not working on your stations, you're working on someone else's. So you bring all your horses back here, your gear, equipment, everything can come back here, and all the boys can come back here and have somewhere to um, rest and, and chill out without having to be in swag and back out in the station there. That was the main, the main point of having The boys you talk about, are they your men or is it, um, you know, do you have a big staff? Yes, the crew, yeah, our crew. No, no, normally it's only five or six fellas or, or, or laddies depending on the team of the year. So it, it chops and changes to uh, depend on a lot of guys you get from down south come up and want to do a year or two of mustering. Or I've got a couple of fellas here that we know uh, that I've worked with but most of my life mates that I've worked with and um, uh, two of my cousins that come up with me. Uh, so they pretty much spend the whole season with us and we, we work together as a team. So You're known more commonly by a lot of people, and nearly 40,000 of them in fact, as the Australian cowboy. Where and how did that all eventuate? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> um, so that thing there, <laughs> how that come about was, uh, I'm going to tell a story here. Um, I had a friend that was running some tour, some like a American high school tours through the Kimberleys. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to show off to his boss and just called me up and said, hey, make, make this trip uh, a good trip. There's some um, high-profile people on here. Can you help me out? Um, can you take me to some of the some cool places or just you know, show them fishing or do something? You know, I was sort of introducing to a local. I said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll uh, come and give you a hand for a day. And I took him out and we went fishing and caught up some big barramundis and cooked on the fire and I showed him a bit of stuff like that. And um, they were looking through the photos and stuff on my phone because that sort of stuff freaks them out. Not freaks them out, but just has them in awe. Like, they can't believe this is actually happening out here. There's cowboys and there's, it's still like the Wild West to them. Um, and so they, they were just calling me cowboy. That's how they knew me, just cowboy, um, for the whole day. And Just for the record, it's still like that to a lot of people, even in Australia. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, and that's scarily enough, you're... You're right there. That's a, don't get me started on that topic, Crikey. <laughs> um, 
So, so they actually um, were going through the photos on my phone. I was like, oh, like, your Instagram must be amazing. What's your Instagram? I said, no, I don't. I barely even use Facebook. I don't have that sort of stuff. And they said, no, we can make you one so we can follow you. And I was like, no, that's all right. I, 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 don't, um, I don't really want one. And they said, no, 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 just so we can follow you. Um, so we can see what you're doing instead. I said, oh, if you want, um, you can make me one up. Um, so they did. They decided to, to make one up. And they called it Australian Cowboy. And I was trying to explain to them that's not really... Uh, the thing to do in Australia, or not anywhere. I said, look, mate, it might be a bit of a cocky thing to do, dicky thing to do, you know, to, to, to call yourself the Australian cowboy, you know, like, yeah, no worries, mate. Like, for one, it's ringer over here. But they're like, no, that's how we know you. We know you're the Australian, you're the cowboy, you're Australian, you're the Australian cowboy. I said, I know, guys, it might sound cool to you, but that's just, just don't call me that. Like, just put nab or something, you know. I said, no, no, that's how we know you. For us, we're the ones following you. I said, all right if you want, whatever. So they did, and they left us that. But I actually, a few months down the track, or could have been a year down the track, other ringers started to get Instagram, and Instagram started to become a thing. And then people would say, oh, hey, but what's your Instagram? And I was like, oh, um, <coughs> Australian camera. <laughs> like, what was that? I was like, Australian camera, just give me your phone, I'll put it in. Um, and they're like, really? Australian camera? I was like, oh, God, here we go. This is terrible. So I changed it. I actually changed it um, to like Navnan or something. Um, and then my brother-in-law said, "Like, don't be an idiot. Like, that's how everyone sees you anyway. Like, you, you're a cowboy. You're that. You're that. You know, you're out there doing that sort of stuff. Just iron us. And Andy, you wouldn't understand, mate. Like, you're, you're not from around here. Like, you just don't do this. Like, this is just so. I feel so embarrassed. You're the because you're embarrassed about it. If you own it, you know, just be that and just keep doing what you do." You're doing the right thing anyway. You're not trying to fade. You're not trying to be someone else. So I was like, all right, I'll, I'll leave it. So I changed it back, and then it actually decided to take off, surprisingly enough. So that's how that all started. <laughs> <laughs> that's the long story. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, that, uh, and 40,000 people later, uh, they're still following you. Yeah. Um, uh, in the research that I've done, I see um, you are one of the seven founders of Ringers Western. How on earth does a ringer from the top end, the top be- end. Be- become a... <laughs> That's a good story too, that one. <laughs> How does a ringer from the top end become involved in the fashion industry? Um, <laughs> That's exactly what we were saying. So my sister is actually a, a model, um, or ex-model, but used to do a lot of modelling growing up. She's an Australian next-top model. And so she's always wanted to have a clothing brand. Probably didn't have... You know, country, you know, but still want to have a clothing brand. And after being on the station for a while, there was always just moments where you're sitting at a campfire and you just tell them your, your favourite work shirt that probably cost you 80 bucks for it. And you're like, you know what? Just imagine if, if you could make, like, why don't people just make clothes like this? You know, like, if, if we could make clothes, we would, you could do it like this. And if I was doing it, I would make this longer and I'll change this around. And you always thought about it, like, all right. Anyway, good night, guys. Off to bed. Next day, something else happens, you know, and then you talk about it again. It was probably talked about it for a year or two before my sister and her partner said, well, why don't we just, it wouldn't be hard. Like, surely we can just make our own work shirts, like, and get them made. Like, oh, sweet. Cool, we can have it. I thought it would be awesome. And then, so, Anika and Angie went away and did a fair bit of study uh, into, well, research into how it would actually work. Meanwhile, we're out in the station, uh, you know, still doing the cattle stuff. And then they came back to us and said, look, 
this can actually be done if we all put in and we all, you know, come up with a design and come up with a name. And it was like, you're not serious, are you? Like, we can't actually, we're stockmen. Like, we, we can't get into the rag trade. Like, we don't know anything about it. Like, this is, we actually going to do this? And people are like, well, why not? Like, let's, let's just do it. And so basically, okay, so this is what we're going to do. Um, so here's a napkin, so you hand over a napkin and write down some names and write down some logos that you think might be cool that you want to have on your shirt and this, this, this is how it will start and then we'll get some hats and shirts maybe and just start there and then we can just uh, go from, you know, Nika and I will be the ones that will uh, be the ones that, you know, push it and um, while you guys work the cattle and, you know, you guys can wear the clothes and then test trial them out and see if they work because so you, you know, in the Kimberley has been the most extreme, one of the most extreme places in Australia. So then, yeah, then finally came back with shirts and hats and it was like, you know, a good six months to a year later, it was like, wow, this is actually going ahead. We are actually going to start selling clothes. Like, this is ridiculous. So cracked a beer and, uh, yeah, got started. <laughs> and then thank God for the support. Come clean, you must now be a model for Ringers Western. Uh, <laughs> well, if you've got to test trial the clothes out, when they do go on sale, like, oh, I've got, already got these photos of never working them, so... I do have to sometimes go down there and, and test drive the new stuff down in uh, Queensland there when they've got it and they, um, they like to send me out to places and wear them and then take photos. Yes, that sometimes does happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> or I may or may not have to stand there and smile. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, well, why, why pay a model when you can... When, we, when you they've know, got you. Just put a... you got Photoshop these days. You can make me look like bloody... Anyone you like. <laughs> so are you still involved in Ringers Western and is it still a family concern? Yeah, yep, still family and friends. So there's not always family involved. Some are just the people that were on the crew at the time. Yep. So at least three of them were not necessarily family, but just good friends of the family. So they're part of it as well. And all just, you've got seven and plus family minds on a job and, and taking ownership of something that... It just seems to have, I guess, um, more of a um, more with the people than just one person trying to uh, find out what uh, could work and what doesn't work. Yeah. Especially being ringers, you, you're so used to just giving people a hand or helping someone out. Like I remember when we first started, it was just we're asking every station, everyone that we knew that what do you like in clothes and how this. And then when we did finally start making clothes, it was like I don't think we sold any for the first year because we kept bloody giving away. You couldn't help it, but this is so cool, here, try this on, here, have this, here, have this, and we had to come to an agreement, go, okay, so we haven't really sold any clothes, <laughs> we're a bit too generous, and uh, we've, all, we've got to, uh, if you actually want this to work, you have to actually run it like a business, you can't just keep giving clothes away because you like the clothes, yeah. so we had to come to an agreement that we all uh, worked out how much we were allowed to uh, give to our friends. Um, In that business model, have you seen much change, you know, probably back when you started? It wasn't many, but if you're in the industry now, you know there's hundreds of places yeah, now that you can look, buy. Now can buy a I so-called guess, what they call it Western shirt. I'm not really sure what that is, but a Western shirt. Um, well, uh, yeah, you know, and the girls like the pretty shirts with their collars up that they can wear their fob chain with. Yeah. Have you seen much of a change in the way that's all gone? Not necessarily. I, I, I guess you've held your ground. Yeah, held our ground in a way. Our main motto was, and that's what you see on the stickers, is sticking together. Like, we know that in the cattle yards, if someone isn't watching your back, you can get smashed. You'd be killed, you know? So you rely on your mates to be honest, straightforward, 
and don't leave me, you know, physically or mentally. Mm. If you think I'm not doing the right thing, say something, you know. If you think I'm in a bad mood or if I'm not acting correctly, say something. That's kind of how we worked on the station. So to bring that across to the team, um, even with new workers on the wa- in the warehouse, it's like, no, just so you know, guys, this is how we work. And if you're going to be here, you have to be with the team as well. Like you to, you're part of the team. You have to actually you know, become a trustworthy member of the team and, and let us know if you're thinking someone's not doing the right thing in the warehouse or someone needs to be safer because we are ringers. You see the stupid stuff we, we try and get away with. You can't really keep ringers tied down and, and make them serious. You know, life is not made to be serious. But it's all about a team spirit and, and you can't do anything without a team anyway. Like, you see, the, the best organisations or the best, uh, everything is... People who work together, you know, and, and try to stick together and help each other out. Yep. So that's the motto for Ringers West, and that's why it's, it started on the station there, and that's how we did it there. Yep. And that's why should it change when you go into doing the clothing business. Mm, no, that's right. So just uh, do you ever return to the lovely Adelaide Hills? You know, Adelaide Hills, um, middle of the desert, you know. <laughs> it is <laughs> It is lovely, I guess, in its own way, um, but... Um, I do have family and friends down there that I, I sometimes, every couple of times, uh, say maybe every uh, two or three years, I'll go back <laughs> down there. But I, it, when there's so much to do, you kind of accidentally fill your, you know, your schedule, especially with mates wanting to come up here all the time. Mm. They kind of use you as a ticket to the Kimberley, so not that it's a problem. They um, have an excuse to come here and go fishing. So it's when you're not mustering, you're going to army. If you're not going to army, someone's booked you out to try and get you to show them their, your secret spots or your fishing spots or camping spots or some waterfall um, or, or something like that. So it's always, always <laughs> So in the wet season, you know, I know they're few and far between of late, but what happens um, for in the life of NAV in the wet season or do you not subscribe to wet seasons in the East Kimberley? Just sit, sit here and sweat away um, and, uh, you know, get a nice detox while <laughs> um, <laughs> Beer. Um, <laughs> the good thing about the Kimberleys is, or the Kimberley is that you've got two different worlds, very, very different worlds. And you've got the dry, seems like a dry desert, and it's lovely. And you've got these thermal springs and gorges, and it's like tops of 27, maybe 30 on a hot day, down to 15 degrees at night time, sometimes 10 degrees. So it's beautiful camping where the blue sky is not a cloud for six months. And then after a while, everything starts to dry up a bit. The fish are hard to catch. You're like, oh, damn it, I wish for the wet season now. You know, and all of a sudden, these awesome tropical storm lightning still come. All the bird life comes. The waterfalls start flowing everywhere. Fish is everywhere. And it's incredible. And then, you know, completely different world, a beautiful world of just green and waterfalls. Then after a while, you're like, damn, it's hot. I wish for the dry season again. And all of a sudden, the dry season comes. So it's really, you're living in two worlds at once almost. You've always got to change. So um, as a 29-year-old ringer who uh, owns a clothing company and a contract mustering business, what does the future hold? I, um, <laughs> I actually want to start some sort of survival school up for from teenagers up to, I don't know, 100 years old. Never too long to learn. Um, but just start a school up, hopefully to get... Uh, give, as we mentioned before, about people not having much of an idea about the outside world, um, outside of the cities, even in a short period of time, take all technologies, including lights and everything away, and you're only going to use firelight, 
you know, if you want to make a chair, you've got to use a log, you know, and cook all your food on the fire and just get them back to appreciating uh, nature and seeing what the other side, outside of the Sydney life is like, as well as show them a bit of the cattle industry or, the, you know, partial industry. So that's my eventual goal is to have enough uh, skill and hopefully uh, demand for that sort of a thing and I can get that up and going. I love to teach, so it's one of my probably greatest passions is teaching. So, yeah, the more I teach, the more I can learn. That would be for mainstream or are you thinking more along the lines of troubled teenagers, those sorts of people, or just anyone who wants to have a go? Uh, Both. I definitely think troubled teenagers and troubled people, even if it's adults, but I also believe that I think... Anyone needs that experience, especially as a young kid. You need to have that sort of experience of being outside, growing up in the dirt a little bit. It doesn't have to be a lot, but climbing trees, you know, having that experience where you're using your hands and body and you're balancing on things that you don't normally do in that world. You know, it's kind of like you get yourself connected to yourself more out here than you do in the city or in the house. So I believe everyone should have a minimal of this experience. So, and we're getting less of it. The, the more and more the technology uh, goes along, we're less and less uh, outside and outdoors, and people uh, are getting more and more afraid of the Kimberleys, also of the outback, when it's not actually that scary. Like, once you know how to deal with the bugs and the animals and the snakes and crocodiles, you, you learn the, the appropriate amount of respect. You don't need to completely fear them, just give them that respect so that you don't get eaten by them, and you can live alongside them without... Um, having to be in a constant state of fear. I'm sure, you know, there will be a huge take-up should you uh, achieve that goal. And, and, you know, by the sound of things, there's not too many goals in life you haven't achieved. At the ripe old age of 29, you've probably (laughs) done more than most 79-year-olds have achieved. So your plan would be that that would be set up in the East Kimberley or do you think you need to move a bit close? I mean, I know it's hard once you come closer to civilization to actually be able to to do what you're trying to teach, but do you think maybe if I just moved a bit closer? I think I did, because, yeah, that's right, I did have thought about that, but I think that without, um, one of the, the things you can't uh, recreate is the emotional side or the mental side of being uh, remote. Yeah. Um, so being out here, straight away, you're in a, a mentally uncomfortable situation of being, I am remote, mm. and I am stuck out here. Like, if I can't just... You know, go up the hill and get range and call in, buddy, either eat, <laughs> you know. Um, I can't just hear a plane or a trouble. I can't hear the vehicles in some highway, you know, five k's away. You actually straight away are put into a mindset of, oh, I actually need to start doing something because I could be, you know, like it helps put you in the state. And I think you can't fake that. You know, you can't fake um, the feeling of being remote or isolated. So I have thought about that, but I, I've figured that um, the best effect would be to be out here um, or somewhere out in the outback. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it would be a successful uh, adventure because I think while we like to think that people don't really care about what we do, I think certainly the drought that's hitting most of regional Australia at the moment um, is indicating that city people really are interested, but there's not an opportunity for them to uh, to get down and dirty like you do every day and take it yeah. for granted I think there's probably the opportunity for that to happen. 
So, Nabs Luno, we look forward to hearing all about you and your uh, survival courses and your survival schools, and I will never look at Ringer's Western clothes quite the same way again. We wish you all the best and good luck. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for the chat. Um, always here, always love a good yarn, as you can see. Get me found on a topic and I'll be gone for hours, so... And uh, that kind of happens when you spend too much time around a campfire. <laughs> no problem. We will keep you posted and we'll talk again soon. Too easy. Thanks, mate. Have a good Take one. Take care. From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications, specialising in rural business and marketing design. Find them on Facebook and Instagram.